0: Well, I think one of the things that history shows us is that a rising tide does not lift all boats.
1: Hi, I'm from the Griot. I'm your co-host,
0: Dr. Christina Greer, and today we have a special guest co-host. I'm Leah Wright-Rigueur. I'm a historian, and you're listening to What's In It For Us.
1: Leah, I'm beyond excited to have you here. Today, we have three important topics. Uh, the sickle cell trait has been cited in 47 police custody deaths and cops are using it to cover up accidental deaths that happen in their custody. There's a new mask mandate out there, and I want to talk about how it affects black people, since we know folks weren't always wearing masks in various parts of the country. And then last but not least, Marjorie Taylor Greene harassing AOC, and we already know that members of the CBC said that she's a danger. So what are you thinking about with these topics?
0: I don't think we should be surprised by that much. I mean, think about like what's on the agenda. So police officers using racial targeting to target black people unsurprising, right? People go to great lengths to cover things up, to find new ways to oppress and to discriminate. So not surprising. Marjorie Taylor Greene, we already knew what was up with her. We also knew that she was in you know, conversation, if you want to be polite, with people who raided the Capitol on January 6th. So to find out that she's harassing AOC and had been harassing for roughly two years, unsurprising. And then I think the CDC, the mask, dropping the mask mandate, that's to be expected. And there are a whole lot of things that we can go into there. But the one thing I do want to focus on, and that I think people should be focusing on is how does that affect black people? So basically, what's in it for us?
1: Ah, oh, I love you. And I cannot wait to get into this. So thank you all for listening to what's in it for us. Let's get started. Okay, so for our hot topic today Leah I wanted to talk to you about Kobe Bryant being inducted posthumously into the Basketball Hall of Fame this past weekend. Um, So you all know the LA Laker icon Kobe Bryant uh, was inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame on Saturday as part of the star study group with Tim Duncan and Kevin Garnett Um, and he was part of the class of 2020 obviously. This is almost 16 months after he and his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, were killed in a helicopter crash with seven others in Southern California. So Vanessa Bryant took the podium Saturday. She gave this beautiful moving tribute to Kobe Bryant and his love of basketball, his family, his teammates, and his fans. And I guess, Leah, you know, I just want to check in with you and sort of see how you were feeling. Just because when Kobe passed, quite suddenly, I know a lot of us were just thrown off because we had grown up with him. You know, he was our age. He was going to prom when I was going to prom. And so to lose someone so young and just beginning to start like a brand new chapter of like philanthropy and movies and the WNBA, it really, I I just felt like he represented um, kind of a renaissance that a lot of us are thinking about in various parts of our careers and our lives. So, where are you on this?
0: So I don't think that we have, as a country, I don't think we as a people have fully processed Kobe Bryant's passing. I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't think we reckoned with his grief. And I think we have to remember that Kobe passed right before the pandemic hit, like Mm -hmm. right before the pandemic hit. And at first it was so, so wild that it didn't feel real. Right. I remember getting the alert and being like, well, this is just, you know, this is another one of those things where they say a celebrity has died and it's just, but right. then TMV reported it and we're like, wait a second, wait a second. And I think the other thing that we didn't realize, we didn't realize how much Kobe Bryant meant to people Yes, and that we haven't processed and we haven't, I don't think people came to grips with how much he represented and how much he symbolized in the lives of people, particularly Black people. And so I think about this because again, like you said, I am the same age. I'm right around the same age as Kobe Bryant. I remember him taking Brandy to prom.
1: Well, and so that's the thing. It's like, not just what he meant to black people, but what he meant to black girls at the time, where it's like, you're about to be an international superstar. not only do you take a black girl to prom, you took a brown skinned black girl to prom. And I think just as a black girl, that really meant something to me at the time. Like it symbolized something that I didn't even think that I processed in a way as a black woman, Um, But I agree with you 100%. COVID happens right after his passing. So we haven't processed the grief of all the lives lost in the Black community due to COVID. But we basically had barely a month to process Kobe's passing before we're locked down and worried about our own money and our own jobs and our own health and our own families. And we didn't, I still don't think we've properly honored someone who meant so much to our community.
0: I'd always been a fan of Kobe Bryant. I knew what Kobe Bryant meant to my dad. I knew what he meant to my husband. I knew what he meant to my brother who was also a basketball player. But what I hadn't even reckoned with and what I hadn't really processed was what it meant that his daughter, who I had started watching as an athlete, right? Her, mm-hmm. if, if you had gone to her Instagram, you knew that she was all over the place, Mambasita, that she walked like him, she shot like him, she trained with him and how proud he was of her. Um, but I hadn't processed that part of it. And I think the element of of this this hero, this icon, dying with his daughter, right? Like his his little black daughter was something that I just couldn't wrap my mind around. And that Mm -hmm. a lot of us can't really, I think couldn't even conceive of. And Mm -hmm. so as we're going, as, as we're trying to deal with this, as we're really just kind of picking up the pieces, we get slammed with the pandemic that disproportionately affects our community. And so I think part of coming out of this, and and I don't think it's an overstatement to say this, is that not only have we not processed the grief of what happens with Kobe Bryant, we haven't processed the grief of going into this and then what happens with COVID-19 and the coronavirus. So it Mm -hmm. seems like one of those things we've just kind of put to the side and we say, now we can say and acknowledge and be like, wow, beautiful hall of fame ceremony, or we remember the funeral around Kobe Bryant, but I don't think we have stopped to really be introspective about what that grief means and when that grief arrives and what we do with it and how we carry it with it. And I think it's a larger question, a larger psychological, a larger emotional question of how we as a community are dealing with the grief and the weight of 2020 more broadly. I, and I think that the 2020 grief
1: is large. And I definitely think that when we all, and we all have to process it at different times, with the loss of a child is actually you know the loss of a a black father doing something for his black child in that process is something that might take us quite some time to really wrap our minds and our hearts around because we've all been struggling with 2020 this this year that means everything and nothing in so many different ways so as we think about kobe and gianna we'll also continue to always think about what's in it for us as black people as we process uh where we are and how we're moving through it. Right. So Leah, I'm glad you're on today because, you know, you know, I love my historians, but I saw this story about the sickle cell trait cited in these 47 police custody deaths and i was i really wanted to get your opinion as a historian so the new york times reviewed more than six thousand pages of records related to the deaths of black people in law enforcement custody in which the sickle cell trait was raised as a cause or contributing factor to their death so the documents cover 25 years of policing activity in counties where nearly one in three black americans live and the references to the sickle cell trait appeared in autopsy reports and court filings and all these other public documents and essentially doctors and researchers are saying um, that the in-custody deaths are attributed to this sickle cell trait um, as is sometimes the primary risk factor so essentially what they're saying is you know when they look at uh, a man, oftentimes in these reports, who's died in police custody, they're trying to use the sickle cell trait as the cause of death. Um, and to me, that just does not sit well with me because we know that, you know, if you have sickle cell, which is a, a primarily African American um, disease that we're dealing with, it's when the blood cells bend into these crescents and block blood vessels. And so they're essentially, um, Law enforcement is, is using these control techniques that doctors say could limit oxygen enough to cause sickling and then death, right? And so not blaming the stun guns or the pepper spray or holding people face down with their arms behind them. They're saying, oh no, this particular black individual died in custody due to sickle cell. And that is frightening for me because I'm so afraid that there's gonna be a court case that sets the precedent that if you have this recessive gene as an African-American, then what has been done to you by law enforcement can essentially be excused.
0: It actually reminds me of the defense's um, argument in the Derek Chauvin trial, where they first tried to say, well, you know, um, George Floyd had a bad heart, he had bad lungs, he was on drugs, and it wasn't that, you know, Derek Chauvin holding him in this position or putting his knee on his neck killed him, but instead that he died because of these other factors. What I was relieved to see in that case, and what I've been relieved to see in other cases historically is that by and large, the court does not buy that. They're usually like, they're generally like, wait a second, These Mm -hmm. things wouldn't have happened unless you had individual in a chokehold, right? Which we're now fighting to ban or what have you. This wouldn't have happened if you didn't have your knee on his neck. This wouldn't have happened if you had him in this constraint. This wouldn't have happened if you hadn't stunned him and caused a heart attack. So there are all of these things. I think we can talk about risk factors, factors certainly, but maybe what we should be talking about are abusive police tactics that might actually trigger a reaction. From Black people, where Black people are disproportionately right affected by, mm-hmm. so and I think we can think about that. Not only can we talk about uh, sickle cell factors and how they're being used in a discriminatory fact uh, faction or being used to discriminate against people after the fact, after they have been killed in police custody, but also we can talk about. I mean, What are the excessive uses of force that police are engaging in that are actually triggering these reactions that uh, disproportionately affect Black people? So we can treat it the same way that, say, we might treat an asthmatic, right? Somebody who has asthma and how they engage with police. But I, I think ultimately what this conversation needs to be about is the accountability of the police. Right? So not thinking about how does this allow police to target Black people or things like that, or saying that this is a way to get police off, but instead saying, what are the excessive and abusive tactics that police are targeting, using to target African-Americans, disproportionately African-Americans, but also indigenous populations and poor and rural communities and working class communities, but disproportionately targeting these Black communities that result in excessive deaths.
1: Right, and so the interesting thing is, what you're saying makes me think of uh, this kind of vignette that I've, I've heard politicians talk about, which is oftentimes we see people sort of, you know imagine there's a massive waterfall and you constantly see someone sort of drowning at the base of said waterfall. And we're at this frantic uh, space of trying to pull people out of the waterfall. Every day we're trying to pull people out of this waterfall instead of asking who is at the top, of the waterfall and how can we prevent these people from falling down this waterfall and possibly drowning? And the, I think the harder question though is for Black people, if we're trying to prevent this excessive force, right? If we're trying to decrease, minimize or erase the rampant police brutality that Black men, women and children experience, I think that's where the rubber is hitting the road where It's like, well, how do we do that? I mean, some black folks are like, this institution is so corrupt, it must be destroyed. We have to rebuild it block by block. There is no way that we can put a new cone of paint on any police department in any county, in any part of this country because the insidious nature of discrimination, racism, anti-black racism explicitly, white supremacy, whatever it may be is so embedded in the culture how do we change that to make sure we, de- what you were talking about, decreasing these instances of, of police brutality? And that's where I really don't know how we fix this, right? Because keep in mind, there are lots of Black folks who have Black police officers in their families, right? We've seen in some of these instances, the police officers who've, who've done some of these killings are Black themselves, right? Or, or stood by while their colleagues did it and protected their colleagues. And so I think that's where I am at a loss, going back to the larger point of, we're still dealing with grief, right? We're not just dealing with COVID grief. We still deal with the fact that Black folks die at the hands of police on a a far too often basis. So processing all this and also trying to figure out what the path forward looks like is really difficult for me.
0: Well, so here's the thing, and this is where I put on my historian cap. One of the One of the most fantastic um, pieces of history that has become apparent over really the last century is that we have a blueprint (laughs) for fixing this. We do have a blueprint for fixing this. We have had innumerable, right? So many commissions on racial rebellion, racial riot, racial massacres in this country. And every single commission has said, That police brutality is one of the contributing factors, not just to unrest and civil disorder and things like that, but also to this idea of inequality instability that we see. And so every single commission has also provided a blueprint for solutions along the way. I mean, the most famous of these is the Kerner Commission. The Kerner Commission lays it out. And we know that there's a new version of the Kerner Commission that's coming out this summer, right? Like shout out to Jelani Cobb for putting that together and for editing a new volume. But the thing that is incredible, I think, about the Kerner Commission is that, again, time and time again social scientists political scientists historians criminologists all of these people all of these experts have accurately recognized what the problem is and the problem is not the people they have recognized these other factors these systemic and these systematic factors each and every single time but what do we find we find that people in positions of power who actually have the ability to do to enact policy making decisions that will change, right? The institution. The, the institution right? itself.
1: <laughs> the institution itself. That's the key piece, right? Because let's be clear, institutions are oftentimes impervious to change, and people are invested in keeping said institution exactly. where it is and how it is. And so exactly. I, I think though that is the piece that I struggle with because we see black elected sometimes choosing the institution over the people right uh choosing policy decisions that will put a band-aid on something that they have power and resources to fundamentally change okay so as we're talking about institutions and policymakers and people who can make change i want to get your response because you know you and i both lived up and down the east coast this new mask mandate and how it will affect black people has me very nervous and i'm oftentimes not I'm, I'm non phased by many things, but we do know that black people by and large are, are thinking critically and seriously about taking the vaccine. Many who have not, it's because it has not been provided to them. Right. You know, we know that white male conservatives are the ones who are like, I don't want to take it. We know police officers by and large in cities, large and small aren't taking it. But black folks are sort of like, you know what, I actually want to be with my family. I actually want to go back to work. So let me give it a shot. Like, yes, we have a long sordid history of of the medical community and the black community in this country. But I think a lot of black folks and black doctors especially are saying, yeah, but this isn't it, right? And so we can like, we can look at the data, we can look at the science and we can move forward. What is really frustrating me is this mask mandate that is essentially saying, you know, CD is like, oh, you know, you don't really need a mask if you're outdoors and, you know, sort of in open spaces, especially in particular states. But what makes me very nervous is that we know that black people have been disproportionately affected by coronavirus. We know that in places like Milwaukee County and Wisconsin, African-Americans make up 70% of the deaths due to coronavirus. But they're only 26% of the county's population. So I understand this excitement to get into the next phase of you know going back to normal or returning to a new normal, whatever you want to call it. But I worry that this eagerness to be back in, say, 2019 days, will really disproportionately affect us as Black folks. And as a historian, you've, you've seen sort of how policy affects us differently, even the, even if it is a blanket policy, right? Um, but this in particular has me feeling some kind of way. And I want to check in with you as the resident historian on what's in it for us.
0: Well, I think one of the things that history shows us is that a rising tide does not lift all boats.
1: Right. Thanks, Obama. But we got the memo. It doesn't work that way.
0: It just doesn't work that way. We also know that Black people are often the first ones sick and the last ones healed. And this is the case. This is the situation right now. So the numbers that have gone out have said that roughly 60 percent of the American population, like 60. The number is like 50, 60 percent of the American population have been vaccinated or claimed to be vaccinated. At Amongst least one Black shot. People, right. At least one shot. Amongst black people that number is only roughly like 25 to 30%, which means black people are not getting the vaccine. And certainly it's not for lack of trying because one of the things that we have seen my hometown included is that we see these vaccine clinics, right? 24-hour vaxathon, come get vax, then go get wax, whatever you want to do. But one of the things that we see is that they are increasingly populated by white community yes. members. Right. Who come in from the suburbs, who are coming in from rural areas to get their shot and go. So when you're looking in these areas where the demographics are predominantly black and Latino, the people standing online to get that shot are not the people from the community. From
1: that community. We saw this in New York, in, in Washington Heights and inwoods with with inwood, with people coming in with plates that were you know, clearly from from Westchester and, and northern parts of New York
0: correct and it's it's not for lack of it's not for lack of trying on the part of actually of the institution we've seen institutions try and do these really i think innovative and interesting ways to get the community vaccinated but the the other part of that is they want to get everyone vaccinated so when the people that show up and take the slots are not necessarily from the zip code where they are trying to target we see a disproportionate effect so we hear a lot of complaints from black people who say well I wasn't able to get the vaccine. I didn't have access to the vaccine. So what we really need to think about, and I think the CDC really has to consider this, but we know that the CDC is in a place that is that is, for the past really two and a half, three, even four years has been controversial, has been politicized against its will, right? Has been forced to really bend to the will of whatever political institutions need it and to- And forced
1: bend to cook the books, books at right? times.
0: And, and cook We've the books. We've got
1: whistleblowers at the CDC.
0: Right. right when we should so, not but but what i think what this means is that we're going to see black people bear the brunt mm-hmm. of what are, whatever wave happens next
1: i think that's the pit that's in my stomach right that we know that people of color but black people that's you know explicitly who i who i think about you know we live in crowded housing conditions Right? We oftentimes work as essential workers in various uh, capacities. We have inconsistent access to healthcare. Uh, we have inconsistent uh, lack of you know, insurance coverage. Uh, oftentimes we're underinsured. And we also are, are more likely to have chronic health conditions um, that make the coronavirus something that can sweep through our communities. And we saw it in different pockets in the South in the very beginning. Uh, of the coronavirus and say like April and May of 2020. And I just think that this relaxing of the rules for me is a bit premature. And I know that a lot of people want to get back to normal, but I'm thinking about the larger black community, not just people in in particular cities that have more more folks vaccinated or or just a, a better infrastructure to protect people of color.
0: So on the one hand, we have to do, we do have to quote unquote, follow the science. But this is also why race matters so much. Because when we inject race into the science, the objective science, we actually see that the picture is very different from what we've been told. So, yes, I fully, I actually fully expect the federal government to come out in the next two months and say, we beat COVID. But that's not true for all of us. It is certainly not true for people of color and it is certainly not true for Black people, right? So how do we inject race into science in a way that isn't discriminatory, but is instead empowering and is about making sure that we don't forget the most vulnerable and the most marginalized within our communities? Because here's my fear. My fear is that once we declare pandemic is over, yay, rah, rah, that we have decided, we have made a cost, a human cost, right, cost uh, risk assessment, saying that there are certain amount of Black lives that are worth throwing out so long as the rest of the country can be open and free. And the reason why I worry about that is because historically that has been the case. We notice, we know that Black lives are disposable. So certainly If it means choosing between the economy and choosing between Black people, we are going to see this country choose the economy over and over and over again. Even as those same Black people are propping up the economy and are so vital to the resurrection of this economy as workers. So we're in a a situation.
1: (laughs) Part of my sadness and frustration is that Black people have so easily been sacrificed in this nation. For, for the, the quote-unquote good of the whole, uh, as many policymakers would would explain it away. And I, and I think that we know this, right? Look, we know that there is a lack of value in our lives. This is what the Black Lives Matter movement's all about. This is what our protests and uprisings have been about for the past, I don't know, I'm not just gonna look at the last 60 years, I'm gonna look at the last 400 years. We've been fighting for this this level of inclusion and being seen and being respected, you know, there's always this conversation about dignity, but it's not just dignity in how you speak to me. It's dignity in how you create policy that would actually pr- protect me. And I agree with you one thousand percent, Leah. You know, as my older sister is a MD doctor, so she, you know, she's like, I'm like, you know, you're like the doctor that reads books. Like I'm the doctor that like can save some lives every year. So it's like I respect what the doctors say. If the doctors say We've gotten the virus under control enough. You can go outside and breathe fresh air. You don't have to wipe down your groceries for 45 minutes like you used to. But at the same time, I do think that sometimes when we're thinking about institutions like the CDC, when we're thinking about some of these folks who have been at the table making these decisions, have there been enough Black people at the table to say, as as you use this phrase that I love, inject race into the prescription, inject race into sort of, we're safe now, you know, using these parameters, but that might just be a relative average for some slash most, but that doesn't necessarily affect Black people. And I am all about what is in it for Black people, what is in it for us as Black people. And so I think that's that's been the nagging concern that I had.
0: One of the things that I would think about too is let's think about, you know, everyone is, is into mass incarceration right now, right? Everyone is writing on the carceral state. Everybody is writing about the problem of mass incarceration and we are retroactively looking backwards and saying, how did we get here? We got here in a moment where we thought we were all safe and the numbers for crime were going down and we're looking at the number of people incarcerated and yes, it's going up, but it's not affecting all of us. And it reminds me of the slow building problem of mass incarceration before it became the problem of mass incarceration. So it is the slow building problem of COVID-19 and health and mortality rates for African-Americans, which actually has been astronomical. Right? It's been horrific in its numbers. But as we creep out of this, we have to pay attention to how many Black people are getting vaccinated, how many Black people continue to die from this. Because I think there comes a point where the U.S. decides enough is enough. We're past this, we're out of this, back to regular life and Black people keep dying and we keep moving forward. And 10 years from now, we look back and we say, how did we get here? How did we get to a point where Black people are still dying from COVID while the rest of the world has moved on? And that, yes. I mean, it's it's James Evans from
1: Good Times, right? Last hired, first fired. You know, we're, we're consistently... Overlooked, And so that moves me to our next topic of people who are not being taken seriously, and they absolutely should be, which is your girl, Marjorie Taylor <laughs> Greene, who is a danger to not just the institution of Congress, but to society. I mean, this is a woman who's a member of Congress from the state of Georgia, who has proven herself time and time again, to essentially be unhinged. Um, and so we see her taunting her colleagues. Uh, There's a 2019 video that resurfaced of her taunting uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's a member of the House from the state of New York. There is a certain frightening quality that she has uh, where she is essentially saying she's a citizen lobbyist, but her colleagues are even saying that this moves beyond just lack of professionalism uh, and, and just beyond being belligerent this is someone who is possibly showing herself as deeply unwell. And what it made me think of was when she had her office across from newly elected member of House of Representatives, Cori Bush. And Cori Bush was like, you know what, as a black woman, as someone who was at her job, I do not have to stay here this woman is dangerous, right? And so I think, you know, the press initially reported as, oh, it looks like Representative Bush is being sensitive, you know, because obviously white women can't be a danger in society. And and obviously a black woman couldn't say that she's fearful of her herself and her staff, where Cori Bush was like, I don't trust this woman's mental stability to be across the hall from me, knowing the capacity to which she will cavort with the insurrectionists of January 6th the MAGAites that have been very clear that they believe in white supremacy and anti-Black racism. And this is someone who is at her job harassing her female colleagues of color. And I just think that she's setting such a dangerous precedent for the type of behavior that is accepted and acceptable. And it's only, I think, because she's blonde and she's white and she's female. And at any minute, she can turn on some tears and say that Cori Bush or AOC is threatening her. And I think the conversation would just shift on a dime and it would be about um, protecting Marjorie Taylor Greene.
0: So I think, you know, I wanna share that wise old black woman adage, which is we tried to warn you, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the one that's going to, I think, come up over and over again when it comes to Marjorie Taylor Greene, that Mm -hmm. we are going to look Mm -hmm. back and look at Cory Bush and look at what Cory Bush said and what Cory Bush did preemptively and say, man, we should have listened to Cori Bush. Cory Bush was really onto something. Cory Bush had it right. But instead, I think the way that we, we have been talking about, and I, and I say we, and I mean media largely by and right. large, but also in, in some respects, the public. I do think that there is a portion of the public that does understand the risk that Marjorie Taylor Greene represents. But I think by and large, there's this emphasis on objectivity, right? And being objective. And that Marjorie Taylor Greene represents one side. So we have to give credence to one side of the conversation if we give credence to the other side. But I am here to say that that is deeply unbalanced, right? What Corey Bush is saying and what Marjorie Taylor Greene is uh, is doing, those two things are not the
1: same. We don't have good people on both sides here. But that is
0: not, no, those, those two things are, are very different. And I think one thing to consider is that we're going to continue to say, because this is what the lead up to the Capitol riots was all about. We're going to continue to say, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. She's acting kooky it's not a big deal, it's not a big deal. And then it becomes a big deal. All of a sudden it explodes and we say, how did we get here? But the point is those red flags were there all along because now we are on very different territory. We've been on different territory, political territory and ideological territory for a very long time within the house, uh, both houses of Congress. But I think the difference is we've now crossed the point of violence. We have seen mm-hmm. violence in our own home, right?
1: I mean, in the halls of Congress, we've seen a, a Confederate flag. We've seen a swastika on a flag.
0: We have seen a noose. <laughs> we've seen a noose, right? We've seen a hangman's gallows. And you know what people did? LOL, just kidding, just joking. Well, I mean, he's just a boy, right? He can't sit, and, sit in jail
1: while we decide his fate. You know, he's got a family. <laughs> he, he's, he's only 47, he's just a boy. Right. I mean, the mental gymnastics that these lawyers and judges are going through to protect these people that came armed to the U.S. Capitol to harm, not just sitting members of, of Congress, but the vice president himself.
0: Right. As sitting members of Congress participated right, in egging on. An insurrection. Now, what I am concerned about, although I think Marjorie Taylor Greene is always in a good constant reminder, my concern is that as we move further and further away from the fact that people attacked our nation's capital, right, and law Americans attacked politics, our right, nation's capital. We have now moved into a territory where this the incident is being whitewashed, right? Mm-hmm. We're being told, get over it. And we're also being told that Black people,
1: Black women especially, are being histrionic right? Leah, you're making a tempest in a teapot. You know, you're a historian, Christina. You're a political scientist. You all make your money talking about race and racism. And this is just, you know, your way of trying to divide the country. And it's like that logic and that belief is so dangerous moving forward, because if we don't deal with January 6th beyond some sort of Blue Ribbon Commission, beyond some sort of little task force that sort of like looks into it, we must get to the root cause of that. Because if not, January 6th can happen multiple times a year with way more detrimental effects.
0: Well, I think one of the really fascinating things to me is that, you know, when January 6th happened, people were like, oh, oh my goodness, this hasn't happened since the 1800s. This is an aberration. This is shocking, right? But actually, if you push back on that, even just like a hint of it, we can go back and find lots of incidents where white Americans who are very upset at the way that the state is upholding right, hierarchy or power by being inclusionary for marginalized and vulnerable populations, especially Black people, not only take their ire out on Black people or indigenous communities or minority communities, but also on the state, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking like 1930s Sherman, Texas, where a white mob raids the capitol house, right? raids the ju- uh, a judge who's overseeing a court case for a black man and basically destroys a black community. I can think of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. Right? So there are all these incidents that may not look like those of the 1800s or something like that, but very much are in the same vein of what we see on January 6, 2021. And I would argue Arizona
1: 2021, May of 2021, Where you have people who just don't believe election results and they're still storming courthouses and places where people are trying to recount and recount ballots for an election that has been decided joe biden has been sworn in you lost get over it but this idea of if it's not what i want to hear then a it's not true and b i can just fight you leah tooth and nail day in and day out just to make it true in my own mind And that is actually not how a democracy can halfway function and the people who will feel the brunt of it always at the end of the day are black folks
0: right and so there are two moments that i that i want to really highlight i think for anybody who's listening right now one you're going to have people who say well what about black lives matter that's what black lives matter and the movement for black lives have been doing no they are fighting to expand democracy right and it's very clear that those protests have been peaceful right 93 percent of those protests have been peaceful has a police officer ever been murdered at a Black Lives Matter protest? Absolutely not. But also that it's about fundamentally making our institutions more democratic and yes. broader so all of us can benefit. That's one. Two, Liz Cheney being impeached from her position the other day is a warning shot. That is a sign, right? Why was she Why was she impeached? Fundamentally because she won't cue to the line that the election results of 2020 are illegitimate, right? And that anybody who bro- who brokers from that line, who stands across from that line, is an enemy of the people, right? The people, right?
1: And the and the true people, and this is the larger conversation, is that the true people that these insurrectionists and these Republicans talk about are white people. Black people are not including this knowledge. Now, before I let you go, though, I think that this is an interesting. once the the phrase Freud You know whereas Black people would say chicken's coming home to roost because don't forget Liz Cheney's father is the architect of so much of this insidious behavior. He's the architect of so much of this division that we've seen Dick Cheney when you were vice president uh, and sort of creating falsehoods, right? There is no war. What do you mean? (laughs) Like we've got thousands of Americans who are dying on a daily basis. Like what is happening? (laughs) And He's like, no, what you see is not happening. And so he's the one who essentially really Created this like 21st century model of don't believe your eyes, just believe exactly what I'm saying to you, even though you know it is not true. And so fast forward 20 years, he has helped create a dragon that they can no longer control.
0: And and I think one of the things that we have to, you know, there's this saying within the Republican Party, which is that the problem with Democrats is that they obey and they listen to facts. Republicans create their own facts. Mm-hmm. That didn't come out. That saying didn't come out with Trump right? This whole post fact America or alternative facts that actually originated under the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes back long. I mean, you can look at the Reagan years.
1: Republicans come to a knife fight with a knife and a gun and Democrats come with some emails and maybe some, you know, some fresh baked cookies trying to sort of think about it. We don't know offense and we can barely figure out defense. Oh, Leah, (sighs) I please promise me you'll come back. (laughs) So can I ask you what's next for you?
0: So I'm working on two books and I'm super excited about these two books, so the first one is essentially looking at rage riot and backlash from Tulsa in 1921 the Tulsa massacre in 1921 through the Capitol riots in 2021. And then the second book I'm working on is essentially something about the Reagan administration and looking at the biggest political scandal of the 20th, uh, essentially the 20th century, where roughly $6 billion gets embezzled out of money that is set aside for Black people and into the hands of elected officials. So Mm. it's called Mourning in America, but it might also be called Black Collar Criminals. We'll see. Working on the title. Oh, I love it. I'm working on.
1: Okay, so those two books sound amazing. And then I think there's something else you're working on. Tell us.
0: Yes, so I've been doing a lot of research on this idea of surveillance in black communities through intelligence agencies and the such. and I came across this program that ran roughly from like 1967 to 1973. and it's called as the FBI's Ghetto Informant Program. And at its peak, it has about 7,500 black people working undercover to infiltrate, to be, to observe and to relay information about Black organizations, particularly Black radical organizations and communities, back to the FBI. So we've all seen Judas and the Black Messiah, right? The informant in that case actually came out of the ghetto informant program. But the big secret that I think is crazy is that not only did those informants stay within the program after it was disbanded, none of them have been unmasked. So at any given point, right, in the 1970s, there are close to 8,000 Black people, right, and they said they could be working, they could be barbers, they could be chefs in restaurants, they could be your boy who stands on the corner, that they were working for the FBI and relaying massive amounts of information to the FBI, even after the program was disbanded. So I think it makes us think about, right, who are those informants today, right? Because we know that they're informants. Who are the people who are relaying the information? And how can we find out more about these kind of programs and what kind of information they are relaying to intelligence agencies in this country?
1: That, Leah, and how long was the program in effect?
0: It was in effect for roughly 1967 to 1973. And so it starts off and they're like, 2,000 members, then they're are 4,000, then they get up to six, and by the end, it's 7,500 ordinary Black people. They, the, so the, the argument, and so I think the, the informant who's in, you know, uh, I think it's William O'Neill, who's the, the informant in Judas and the Black Messiah, who's, you know, who was the informant for the FBI for Fred Hampton, that leads to the murder of Fred Hampton, he is actually more high profile than the majority of the people who participate in this program. The emphasis is on ordinary everyday people, the people you wouldn't suspect, the janitor at the school, right? The lunch lady, right? The people who are ordinary everyday who you don't necessarily like see as these high profile individuals. And the, the crazy thing to me is that we know at, at times there are moments where you know the Senate will have a hearing and be like, well, who are these individuals? And the FBI is like, uh-uh, we're not telling you who these individuals not, are. Not yet. Nope, Not but we're going to disband the program, but we're just going to reassign these individuals. And so there are all of these people that come out. There's one, I, I believe she actually predates the program. There's one woman who is a Black housewife who is an FBI informant, right, in the 1950s and the 1960s. And that's, you know, when we talk about, I think, when we talk about Black women and the roles that they're playing, it never occurs to us that they could actually be FBI informants. Right. But we do know. And anybody growing up in New York who's listening to this, but anybody who's growing up in New York knows that the CIA and the FBI used to recruit by putting advertisements on hot 93, seven, right? I mean, hot 97 power one Oh five, right. You can listen and be like, you guys want a job, come work in intelligence for the CIA or FBI. But how many people you think actually took them up on that offer? That's right. the question I want to know.
1: And what kinds of people took them up on that offer? How are they paid? How are they compensated? How are they protected? How are they targeted, especially if you have someone that you might need to protect? And oh, my gosh, I can't wait. OK, I can't wait for all of these books. So let me let you go so you can get to writing. All <laughs> <I know>,
0: right, <laughs> I got a lot of work to do. Got a lot of work to do.
1: Thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. The What's In It For Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio, an executive produced by Blue Talusma, and co-produced by Abdul Kudus, Antonio Thompson, and Taji Senior.